Hey, it's Raul Beneja from Raul and the Big Time, and you're listening to Talking Blues. How was Memphis? Memphis. Yeah, that was cool. Um, you went to for the IBCs. Yeah, we went to the International Blues Challenge, uh, representing the Bruce County Blues Society. First time? Yes. Uh, second time to Memphis, first time at the IBC. Um, you know, I'm... Competitions and awards in art are always kind of weird things anyways. Right. So, like, there's a part of me that on one level, like, philosophically disagrees with the whole concept of an international blues challenge and then there's another part of me that thinks oh wow is this amazing activity mm-hmm. um your impressions i thought uh there are a lot of good bands from all over the place uh i felt for us it was a good learning experience because um i think we felt very comfortable that we were we we had a spot among the best acts there. Uh, we didn't get to the finals. I thought we might, and that you know is not just an ego stroke. It also has to do with you know who's in your club that night and all that stuff, and and the crowd reaction. Um, considering how it had gone that night at our club, we were second to last, and I, I kind of thought we'd get through. Uh, we didn't. So that was, of course, disappointing because once you're there the whole week, you'd love mm-hmm. to get to as far as you can. But, uh, you know, we got a lot of great feedback. People liked us, and I felt almost more for the band. It was that feeling of like, um, oh, yeah, if this is a selection of some of the best people around, then, uh, you know, we totally belong in that conversation. And I think sometimes when you're a band in Canada, uh, you don't really have a good yardstick to judge yourself against. Right. Uh, we only have each other, and now that the uh, that kind of history of the American touring band in the van is sort of done, mm-hmm. uh, compared to how it was even when I was growing up, uh, you know, you don't have that opportunity to see each week a great American blues artist in your town, to sort of go like, oh wow, yeah, this is this is what that guy's up to and what they're doing. And I think also it's a function of being 40, over 40 now, is that, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years, so, you know, you, you'd want to be getting good at it or feel that you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm always frustrated by my limitations, but at the same time, I felt as an act, it was, a, you know, we, we put on a professional, entertaining set of original, all original music. So I like that part. Um, I got really sick. I got like food poisoning, so I don't know if I would have been even able to make it to the finals. Yikes. So uh, that was a mixed blessing. Where Do you I know where the culprit was? I don't want to name the institution, <laughs> okay. but safe to say there's a lot of food options in Memphis. And mm-hmm. I was very careful. I was monastic the whole week, but just something got me. And so, I bet you it wasn't a salad. I, you know what? I think it was a vegetable that got no, me. No, really? Believe it or not. They have them there? I went to a very nice place. And had a very nice vegetable, and I think it may have been something Ugh. to do with that. But anyways, I, I, uh, and then one of the other highlights of the trip was that right after the competition ended, I'd felt better, and I had an opportunity with my dad, who'd come down as well, and five members of the seven-member big time. We went down to Clarksdale, and I got to show them Reds and Clarksdale, Mississippi, and 
where our friend Super Chicken is from and Big A, who we brought up from uh, Mississippi to do a show with us about a year ago at Kerner Hall. So uh, I know being in Clarksdale for me was was quite a formative experience when I first got there about four years ago, so five years ago now. So I was very um, happy to bring the band there because I thought that was an uh, important pilgrimage for a musician, blues mm-hmm. musician. For sure. Once you go there, it's just... Things start to make a little more sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And if your mind is, uh, you know, if you're open to what is around you. And uh, I think the most interesting thing about it is not just the history, but seeing it in the context of today Mm -hmm. and where it fits in kind of modern America and where, uh, you know, some of the challenges that a city like that, a town like that faces today. It's important, I think, for blues musicians, uh, those of us who profited off the African-American experience and African-American music, at the very least, it's important for us to understand where it's come from, but also where that politically, culturally is right now. Um, Because I think it's a, a bit convenient at times to just say oh yeah well all music is universal and music is music man and you know whatever i think this music is one that is very important that you understand the historical context as best as you can mm-hmm. for sure um i was going to ask you how music came into your life but um, let me ask you which came first acting or music they both kind of came at the same time really i was uh i was a kid living in germany for a few years uh, my dad was there for work and uh, I was at this British school there, a uh, small little school, and uh, it had kind of a music program and a bit of a drama school play kind of thing going on. And, I, you know, I'd always loved being in, in front of people and audiences and entertaining people, even as a kid. You know, we used to have like Christmas concerts in our house at Christmas time. Relatives would come over and, you know, we'd we perform songs for them or little things like that. And I'd been taking guitar lessons in Germany as well because my, my brother Neil was uh, old, four years older than me and he was a guitar player, so I wanted to be one too. And then uh, I had a one of my teachers at the school, she lived across the street with her husband and her husband was this guy who had like every instrument. Congas and, you know, uh, guitars and... And on his shelf, he had this little black uh, Honer Pro Harp in the key of E, and which any harmonica players learned, you know, you don't like a harmonica in the key of E because it's too high. If you play cross harp blues, you, you, if you're going to play an E, you want to have an A harp, which is nice and low. So he saw me staring at it one day, and he picked it up and kind of, you know, made a few sounds on it, and he could see I was really interested. So he just handed it to me and said here you can have it and honestly I think if he had not given me that harmonica I don't know if I would even I don't know if I'd be a blues musician at all I don't think I would be well how old were you I would have probably been about 12 11 or 12 so musically did you hear any blues at that point or Uh, I'd only really heard uh, I'd like Jimi Hendrix at the time Mm -hmm. so I'd heard a little bit of blues I'd I'd look on the back of LPs and see that there were these songs that 
you know, Jimi Hendrix did, but they were written by, you know, some guy named Chester Burnett or some guy named McKinley Morganfield or Willie Dixon. And I go, who are those guys? Because all the other ones said, you know, were Jimi Hendrix songs. And once I was given this harmonica, I decided I had to find music that harmonica was in because how was I going to learn to play it? Because nobody I knew could play it. I mean, the guy who gave it to me couldn't really even play it. Was there any reference musically at that point to harmonica? No, I mean, Bob Dylan, which I, you know, as much of a genius as he is, I mean, no one would really say he's a genius on the harmonica as an instrument, you know? So, no, I had no reference for it. There was a family friend of ours who played who as a kid I remember hearing once or twice play very intricate chromatic harmonica like around the around the party scene and growing up and he was uh, he could play Bollywood songs and he could play Larry Adler and classical song he, he was a real adept chromatic player uh, but I, I really had no reference for it at all and I went into a record shop in Bonn Germany where I was growing up and I basically just asked the guy like what has harmonica on it knowing that blues was probably an option. And, you know, I, I picked up my first couple LPs and that's really when it started. I, I, I was listening to it. And so to go back and answer your question, around the same time I started doing at that same school, you know, like assemblies and sketch skits and pretend. And I got into my first plays when I was in that school. And did you love that immediately? Yeah. Yeah. My first time performing music in front of an audience was, uh, I did an, I used to do, when I was a kid, I used to do impersonations of Louis Armstrong. So I, when I was about, you know, 11 or 12, around, all around the same time, I sang Alexander's Ragtime Band with my school orchestra. I use that term loosely. <laughs> school band. As, as Louis Armstrong? As Louis Armstrong, yeah. And really then, again, when I was in high school, I did it. I did What a Wonderful World with like the high school jazz quartet, which was a really good band. And I did that as Louis Armstrong. And so Louis, the Louis Armstrong impersonation was kind of my way into uh, singing in front of a band, actually, in a funny way. Hmm. And then I was playing. Yeah. And then I'd walk to school with playing harmonica. I had a, a decent walk from the bus, from my house to the bus and from the bus to my school. So when I was on my own, I'd walk just in time, and I'd just have it literally in my, house, in my mouth and in my hands, just breathing in and out. And that's kind of where I started to learn about rhythm. And then I picked up this book, which every harmonica player of my generation and older had, which was uh, a book called Blues Harp by Tony Glover. And Tony Glover, uh, I think it's Oak Publications, but it was basically one of the few books there was on how to play harmonica. Hmm. And had like, you know, a black guy on the cover with a harmonica, like a cart, a drawing with a, with a hat and a harmonica in his hand. And, and so I kind of read that and tried to, but that's also, the cool thing about that book is inside he had pictures of like little Walter and who, who these guys were. So when I moved back to Canada, uh, one of the LP, one of the first LPs I got was uh, James Cotton live at Antones, and so and James at that time was quite actively doing the van tours mm -hmm. across North America. So uh, in high school, I bet you that was like nothing like you saw in the book. Yeah, 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 yeah. So when I got to when I got to hear James live for the first time and see James live for the first time. I'm guessing it was about 1990. So yeah, I would have been about 15 or 16. 
uh, and that was sort of the first real Chicago blues harmonica player I ever got to see live. And I'd been a fan because I'd really listened a lot to uh, James Cotton live at Antones. So that's the first time I saw like a great harmonica player lead a band and all that. And I met Noel Neal that night, uh, Kenny Neal's brother who just passed away, a bass player. And so that, and uh, oh, uh, uh, Ray Killer Allison was on drums, you know. So it was a real like cool Chicago blues band, except James was in an awful mood and like dropped, threw his mic down on the stage, walked off, quit the show. And I, so I was totally shocked by his crankiness and uh, how much of a bad mood he was in. I, I, I was sort of stunned because I'd come to see my, you know, they say never meet your idols, mm-hmm. right? He wouldn't give me an autograph. He wouldn't talk. I couldn't get, like I got nothing from him. It was a bad night for James. So <laughs> I remember going like, wait a second, what the hell is going on? And, uh, Later, you know, even that night, I kind of learned there were many other external forces at play. But, um, but yeah, that's really, you know, and then one of my other big harmonic influences when I was starting out was um, there was a harmonica player originally from the uh, New York, from New York State who uh, had been in New Orleans and he had, he'd, he'd come up and played in Ottawa over the years and he'd met, uh, and fallen in love with the waitress at uh, the Rainbow Bistro, which was the blues club I was allowed to in as long as I didn't order any alcohol. So when I was 15 or 16, my friend Wendy Ross, who was a waitress, got started to... I basically, knew, with her permission via the doorman, I was allowed to come into the Rainbow as long as I never ordered alcohol. And if I ever ordered alcohol, she said, you can never come back. Right. So um, this great harmonica player had started to come through town uh, and he was coming a lot more because he f- fell in love with this woman who worked at the Rainbow as well. And his name's Johnny Sansone, mm-hmm. you know, who a lot of us now know as a great New Orleans-based uh, harmonica player, singer, songwriter, accordion player. And so Johnny was the first guy I ever kind of got a lesson from. Um, and uh, and he was he's always been such an incredible harmonica player and a, just a great musician all around. So so he was like, uh, and then of course there were a few guys locally in Ottawa who were great players too. Uh, Larry Mutham, who's now passed away. Uh, Neil Barrington is still around and playing. He was one of the few guys who played in the Walter style. Um, and so, you know, I had a couple guys to come, but Jerome Godbu, who's also from Ottawa, Jerome had left by the time I started going to the scene. And, right. uh, you know, Sue Foley had just left town when I started going to the bars. So, so I had mentors like Tony D now of monkey junk, you know, he was the guy, Tony, when I was in high school, he, we'd bring him our demo tape, you know, Tony, what do you think? And it's fun because now with monkey junk, you know, Tony's about probably 10 years older than me, Matt Saab, the drummer's my age. So Matt and I and his brother were complete contemporaries in Ottawa music scene. And then Steve Mariner is about 10 years younger than us or younger than me, even a little bit more. So, uh, so Monkey Junk's a fun band for me because I really know those three generations of guys yeah, from really. my hometown. So yeah, that that was really um, you know, and then in Ottawa, a club like the Rainbow, the Downstairs Club, Mexicali Roses, uh, Tucson's Roadhouse. There were all these clubs when I was growing up in Ottawa where uh, there were great local blues musicians, and then occasionally we would get, you know, Jimmy Johnson from Chicago. Uh, Little Mike and the Tornadoes, Little Ed and the Imperials, uh, 
you know, uh, Buddy Guy, I got to see at the Penguin, which was like uh, like a 200-seater I got to see Buddy Guy in. Um, got to meet McIntyre Murphy. So I must have been 15 people at that gig, something crazy like that. You know, and, and what I, ex, with the exception of James Cotton that one night, most of the blues guys I'd met over the years were very, um, you know, when they'd see like a 16-year-old kid come up and start bugging them, they were, nine times out of ten, they were very friendly and accommodating and accessible. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you know, you'd go to rock shows and some stupid band from Toronto, like the guys wouldn't talk to anybody or they were all acting like they were Jim Morrison or whatever. And <laughs> they were just some dumb band from Toronto. Did you actually get a chance to meet James Cotton later on? I did. I met James on a few occasions. I never had, I never had, got to have like a real, like many of my friends over the years. And because again, because they only passed away a couple of years ago, you know, that's like many, many of my friends got a chance to hang with them and talk to them and play with them, get to know them. I just met him on a couple other occasions. I have a, I have a better photo with him from the horseshoe where he's like smiling and we're like doing the thumbs up thing and I was like okay I got my good James Cotton photo but uh but no I uh I got to see him a few more times over the years of course when I got to see him he, he was still singing which was great mm-hmm. and then as the years progressed you know I saw him with uh one of my other favorite blues singers Daryl Newlish was uh his singer when I caught him at the horseshoe probably around 2000 2002 <laughs> Um, yeah, but no, Cotton I got to see quite a few times, and I think he ended up being such a big influence as a live performer on harmonica players because, you know, he kept going for so long compared to, you know, Jesus, uh, little Walter died in 1968, mm-hmm. uh, big Walter Horton was dead in the early 80s and, and didn't tour as much, and and then you were, and even, you know, if you liked the more that later generation stuff of uh, even Butterfield, you know, Butterfield's dead in the eighties, I guess. And so we kind of didn't have, you know, guitar players. There's a, like guitar players, you just turn around and there's some amazing in your hometown. There's a guy who's an amazing blues guitar player, you know, Uh, but harmonica players, it's harder to find. So then kind of my biggest mentor who followed up after Johnny and was more after I started Raul in the big time was Mark Hummel. Mm Mm-hmm. And Mark, uh, I'd met out in California, and I'd met him out in Toronto, and then we became friends. And he, you know, I flew out to, I, I, <laughs> I met him in California, and I said, Are "You playing in Canada?" He said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm going to Edmonton, and I'm going to play at the commercial Blues on White in Edmonton." And I said, "Do you do lessons?" He said, "Yeah, sure, yeah, I do lessons." I said, "Okay, I'm going to see you out there," and he went, "Yeah, yeah, okay, cool." And I think you know, he probably thought, "Whatever, people must say that to him all the time." And then, you know, six months later, it's a Monday night, the commercial in Edmonton. I'd never been to Edmonton. So you, you flew out there for a lesson? Yeah. So I, <laughs> I, and you know, at the commercial at that time, it was, uh, you know, if a band flew in, they'd play Monday till Saturday night. Right. So I get off the plane. I, you know, take the taxi. This place called Blues on White. I get a room upstairs. I put my bags upstairs. You know, you can watch the band on the closed circuit TV. I see the band hit the stage. I go, okay, cool. So I go down. And Monday night, it's usually dead. There's nobody there on a Monday night. So, you know, I go down, sit in the front row, tapping my foot, and I'm smiling. I could look, Mark looks over, and he's like, geez, who's this, like, you're eager weirdo in the front front row? I wonder who this kid is. Anyways, whatever. And then, like, over the set, I could see it slowly dawn on him. 
oh man, it's that guy who said he was coming and he's here. And so man, I stuck to that band like glue that whole week. And he was, he was cool because he could have, you know, just said, oh man, leave me alone. <laughs> but that's where I got to meet his band, Charles Wheel and Wolf and Marty, who I just, you know, that's almost, that's like 18 years ago, 17 years ago. And, you know, Marty and I just played three shows together in California last month. So, you know, that's where I met all those guys right. for the first time. And Mark was great. Yeah, we had some lessons, but I also, like, I would just buy him meals and like we'd go to the Y and we'd ride the exercise bike together. And we just like what, whatever he wanted to do, I would follow him around and do. And it was a really good education because I watched the band basically play close to uh, the same set like five times in a row. And to see it build throughout the week, mm-hmm. what changed, what didn't change. And to, as the audiences got bigger, how the intensity changed with the band. And, uh, you know, he got me up a few times, too. And, and actually, oh, that's where I met John Campbell, John, too. I remember one, one show he and I played together. We opened for Mark. But but it was just a really good experience of um, watching a band in action. And, and actually, that's kind of where Mark Mark spoke a lot that week about uh, what it was to be a band leader. And I'd only had Raul and the Big Time together for about two or three years, or maybe two, two to four years at that point I'd had the band going. So... It was really good to get that time with Mark because he shared a lot of, you know, how he thought, um, you know, he should run a band and treat people. And and so, yeah, he's been another big influence. And I got to sit down and have a meal with him last two months ago in California, which was great. Talk about the old days. So, uh, yeah, and I've always said to that generation of guys, you know, who and in the case of California, like most of those guys are white artists. Mm -hmm. But... To me, they're like my Muddy Waters and my little Walter because I never had the opportunity to see so many of those legendary right. people. Uh, when I saw these guys, a lot of them were, you know, really, they're my age now. You know, like I saw a lot of those guys in their 40s playing tough and really hard and playing well. So uh, so, so the out of the California guys, a lot of those people have been really influential to me because um, I could see these people really at the top of their game play this music I love and um and you know Toronto all a bit like Ottawa you know not not a real harmonica heavy town mm-hmm. if you think in relation to guitar or relation to other scenes right of course there was always Al Lehrman uh Michael Pickett um but even a great player like Chris Whiteley like oh, harmonica is like the fourth instrument he plays <laughs> so <laughs> So, you know, we didn't have that kind of thing like in the, on the West Coast where it was, like, you know, swinging harmonica, Walter, little Walter-influenced harmonica. I mean, we've got Carlos, too. You can never... Car- Carlos is Carlos, but um, he's almost like... A, he's a bridge between the Michael Pickett generation and my generation. Mm-hmm. You know? So I almost think of Carlos as a peer, even though, you know, he's, uh, he's got 15 years on me. Jerome, you know, we're, we're sort, they're sort of bridges right. for me. Um, I wonder, like, at what point did you decide that you wanted to pursue blues as a c- career, but you also, at the same time, were pursuing your acting? Like, did that ever, was there a conflict in that at any point? Yeah, I mean, in some ways there always is. I mean, there still is right now. I kind of go, well, you know, how how am I going to make a living? And Sometimes I can do it playing a lot of music and sometimes I have to basically put music on the back burner if I'm in a play for a long run or um, 
I tried when I left the National Theatre School of Canada in 96. And you went there for acting. Acting. Yep. Uh, when I and I, I didn't really play a lot of music, like I didn't play much blues during that three year period. And you're thinking, I want to be an actor. Did it matter if it was theater or film or TV or? It didn't really matter, you know. I just wanted to make a living and play interesting parts, and that's still kind of my criteria, you know. Try to be involved in things that are interesting that you can believe in, and but I. At times, I was like, okay. I, at different times, I'm like, okay, I'm a musician. I'm just going to do that. And then at different times, I've been like, okay, no, you're, come on, quit messing around. You're an actor. And I tried that a little bit in those first few years, and I was never really happy because it seemed uh, it seemed like a bad idea to try to be just one when I love doing both. And when, you know, as I had a both of my careers as a musician and an actor have relied a lot on me having to hustle up my own work and mm -hmm. to make my own opportunities. I kind of went, well, you know, uh, I'll just book all this myself and try to do it my, like I'll try to manage the schedule myself. Right. It's definitely put some limitations on my musical career. I was less um, apt to look at like, you know, back in the day, like van tours across North America and all that stuff, it didn't really seem that viable. But that's also a bit of a factor that, you know, like the person I basically co-founded Raul in the big time with this for that whole period had a full-time job. Right. Darren's always had a full-time job. He's now approaching like a young man's retirement. So he may in the next few years end up being way more available to go hop in a van and go here, fly there, go to Europe and do stuff together. But I never really saw myself as like um, a harmonicus player with sidemen. I've always felt more that I'm a blues musician who is part of this band. Right. So I've played with Tom for probably 19 years, and I've played with Darren for 20 from the first gig. Wow. And uh, we've, we're only on our th third full-time bass player. And we had Chung Lu for probably eight years, uh, Terry for 11, and now Justine Fisher's been in the last, not even year, you know, like eight months or whatever. So I've really, it's really been more like a band for me as opposed to blues frontman who, or harmonica frontman who just slots in whoever he wants. Right. I, I'm getting more comfortable with that, and I've, I'd like, I just did this tour in California where I did 10 shows with probably six different bands, you know, backing me up, different guitar players, and that was fun. And I, I'm. And you played with some pretty amazing yeah. people. No, it's, I mean, California's amazing, and for the kind of blues I like to do, you know, there's no explanation required. I just go in and play and. There's an upright bass to my left. Great. There's a drummer who knows how to swing behind me. And then out of the guitar players I worked with, like there are all these amazing guitar players who know how to back harmonica. Because mm -hmm. that was, again, in that, in that environment, there was a prerequisite to backing up harmonica players because there were so many prominent ones who toured and were really good. Mm -hmm. um, and also, the West Coast has always had that kind of uh, bit of jazz influence and swing influence. And I feel like in Toronto... It was either kind of R&B, funk, or rock. Those have been pretty big influences on blues here. Right. And not so much swing and jump. So um, for the kind of blues I like, it's not that's not a vocabulary that every blues musician has here. Um, and not that everyone in every blues bar in California would either. 
because of course the influences are similar there too. But there's a pretty big pool of guys who know how to swing, yeah, and that's sure. good for me. When, when you said making your own opportunities, both in acting and in music, I can see that in music a little easier. Uh, if you decide you want to put on your own show or put on a few shows. Um, but in acting, and I know you've done some putting on some of your own shows, but in acting you also rely on going for auditions yeah. and being called to various things. Tell me what the big difference between the two are. Well, one reason I started Raul in the big time was uh, I'd left theater school. I came here. To, to Toronto, I was very eager to start working as an actor, and uh, and, and no opportunities Ottawa, like Toronto was the place to be. Yeah, yeah. My my girlfriend now, my wife had moved here, and uh, and she's an actress. She's an actor too. Yeah, and so uh, I had to spend like a year and a half waiting by the phone for the phone to ring, and when you're a young, hungry actor and you come to a big city like Toronto, it's very frustrating because you're a nobody. Mm-hmm. And one in a hundred gets sort of the magic wand and gets to go and rise to the top and the rest of you are just duking it out. So I realized something like Raul in the Big Time was going to be a tonic for me because I was going to have a lot more independence and autonomy and just like you said, the ability to kind of book my own gigs, play the music I wanted when I wanted. You know, as an actor, particularly in television or film, you know, you're, you're, you're a hired gun. You know, it's it's actually I'm an actor more like I'm a session musician, and I'm a blues man like I'm a blues man. <laughs> like as a blues musician, I do what I want. Right. I don't like if someone if someone's crazy enough to hire me as their backup harmonica player, I'm happy to do it. But those gigs have been pretty dry for harmonica players since about 1965. Right. So, um, uh, but as an actor, I'm I, I unless I find something morally offensive, I pretty much will do it because that's the job. I'm not, as a musician, in a way, as skilled to be like uh, a guy who can play like music in 20 different genres. Right. I just play blues. How do, you, how do you come to terms with the fact that if you're going for an audition, oftentimes it has nothing to do with your ability. It might be just the way you look or the age or whatever. How do you come to terms with that? Just, I mean, I guess that's yeah. the way it is. It's hard. It's, every day it's an issue. I mean, here I'm... This month, May 2018, is the 20th year of Raul in the Big Time, almost exactly to the day. And it's my 22nd year as a professional actor. Right. And uh, a lot of the things that f- would frustrate you as a musician 20 years ago still frustrate you now. <laughs> and as an actor, it still frustrates me the same thing. Yeah, look, ethnicity is a big issue, you know, uh, uh, on screen, it's changing slowly, but kind of the the prime years of my youth as an actor on television or film and in the theater went by when even being someone who's only you know half white uh, was a hindrance to most leading roles in everything. And yet, you've done like over eighty te- yeah. television and film roles. Yeah, I've I've been lucky to work but if you would if you look at that selection of stuff I've done and you go okay what are the 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 leading roles mm-hmm. they're few and far between the reality in TV and film and is that leading roles are hard there's only one of them so they're hard for everybody to right. get but you can't deny that um 
artists of color have had a harder go of it because there's less opportunity. So, um, so yeah, it's hard, but something like Raul in the Big Time gave me and gives me still, um, I don't have to wait for someone to tell me when I'm allowed to be in front of an audience and perform. Mm -hmm. And also, if you start to get really sucked into the TV and film world, you'd lose that live audience connection. Your performing audience is the crew and your other actor across from you, which has its own satisfaction. But, you know, if you're addicted to live performance like I am and to that sort of alchemy of improvisation that's there in blues and can be there in live theater, uh, you can't, I can't go too long without it. So it's a beautiful balance if you can find, if you're lucky enough to be like on some cool thing where you're making great money and then you're getting to play blues festivals. I mean, it's, I, I had an experience a couple of, about a year and a half ago. I was shooting a movie here in town uh, called Miss Sloan, which was with uh, Jessica Chastain, you know, big Hollywood actor. And almost all my scenes were with the great Sam Wanamaker, you know, just this great mm -hmm. American actor of legendary status, John Lithgow and all these guys. And I'm in this movie with all these incredible actors and I remember um, I had well in advance booked a Saturday night at the Rex. And I remember we played an incredible show at the Saturday night at the Rex. I rented a room upstairs because my call was so early. I was just going to, it wasn't even worth going home. I was going to basically play, go to bed, wake up, have a shower, shave, and go to set for 5 a.m. or whatever it was. And I just remember that morning going like, <laughs> this is like my perfect life, man. I played like this incredible packed super fun show with the seven piece version of my band at the Rex. I got up the next morning and then I'm like, I'm in scenes with Sam Wanamaker in a Hollywood movie. Like that's, that's, that was for me the absolute, you know, cream of the cream of the crop and, and, and more you can. And, and that was the kind of day I was like, you know, cause some days I kind of go, Oh yeah, man, it's weird to be, is my focus split? Is my, mm -hmm. is my attention split? Is my creativity split or my resources split? You know, and uh, it, it, it has. And, and sometimes it's been frustrating because I thought, oh, man, if only I had, you know, 10 years ago gone on that tour or if only 15 years ago I had started doing all the things in Europe, you know, would more people know who Raul and the Big Time are now and all that. But, you know, I just kind of, you know, there's not that much value in living in the past. And the other reality is, is uh, you know, the music business has changed so much in the 20 years even I've been in it that uh, it's hard to know if that investment really would have paid off ultimately in the end mm -hmm. when you see the tiny sliver of artists left who can really make a living off it and the rest of us who are just out there flopping around trying to figure out what the hell we're going to do now. And it's funny because what happened to music is now slowly happening to TV and film. Can you explain that? Because I think a lot of people wouldn't understand in what way. Yeah, like... Um, the invention of the mp3 mm -hmm. changed the music industry forever and that whole time where i saw the entire music industry disrupted record companies disappear mm -hmm. management companies disappear all middlemen and women gone and it became this much more skeletal apparatus where there were techno technology companies the artists and then the handful of people in between mm -hmm. uh and unfortunately the main 
drawers of revenue and resource have been the technology companies. The artists don't have much and the middlemen are all in real estate or whatever they're doing. Right. Uh, I now see that as the capacity for broadband has increased. Now, film and television are being disrupted in, in a way too because now, now there's the MP4 or whatever it is, whatever the audio visual right. file is, you know. Now there's a video file that can be, uh, so now we have streaming and now uh, it's just all become content versus it being um, blockbusters and then art house movies of this scale and then uh, American cable television, American network television, Canadian network television, Canadian cable television. There were all these tiers before that an actor like me could sort of find their way into. And now you, I slowly see it becoming like almost every show is made or has a, Netflix has a piece of almost everything. Mm -hmm. Amazon is starting to have a piece of almost everything. And uh, that can be good, but it also can be bad. Uh, and I don't, and Apple, and we just don't know yet. But I do know what happened to music has not made it easier for people to make a living off making music. Mm -hmm. And I worry that in regards to TV and film, uh, it's not going to make it easier for people to make a living. And for me, those are my two professions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't really have a fallback. And now I got a family and a house and a car and two kids, and I'm trying to maintain my you know, uh, perception of being someone at least in the middle class. And it's a real challenge right now because both those industries are upside down. Now, but the other thing, when we talk about creating opportunities, one of the things that you do is you also write and create your own projects. I presume, I don't know if that's necessity or that's just your passion, but tell me about that process. Yeah, well, the for years I had been asked, you know, why don't you do a play about the blues? Mm -hmm. Like, you love blues and you're a theater artist, why don't you do it? And that was a really long process to come up with what's now Life, Death, and the Blues, which has been performed for about 20,000 people across Canada in six cities. We did 100 performances or so. Um, no, we've done exactly 100 performances. And that was like an autobiographical play concert thing that I, uh, that I wrote. And that was a very satisfying experience. And um, it turned out to go better and become a bigger thing than I ever could have imagined. I mean, I thought, we'll do it in Toronto and see if anyone comes. And then <laughs> more and more people started getting interested in it. And um, there's still a couple opportunities to do it in Canada. I just had to step back from it for a while because uh, those commitments you have to make a year in advance. Mm -hmm. And it was getting very hard to get back on TV when you told them, oh, I'd love to audition for the lead in your series. But, you know, six months into it, uh, I got to go away for, <clears throat> for three weeks because I'm doing this autobiographical blues play that no one else can understudy. Because in Life, Death, and the Blues, I play myself. I sing. I play harmonica. I play on, uh, guitars. and like right. It's me. Like, no one else can do it. Um, if it was successful in Canada... And you could travel across Canada. Could it go, like, is there any difference in going to the States or Europe with this? Or is it somewhat Canadian-based? I, I think it's, um, uh, I've thought a lot about that. Um, I didn't go too far down that road because the other thing it did is for three to six week chunks, I was away a lot from right. my kids. And uh, and my kids are still kind of young, so I, I didn't pursue it as much. I think the challenge about doing 
a show about the blues in America is um, if you're if you're not an American, it has to be presented in a very clear frame that you are discussing their art form from your perspective. Right. In Canada, it's not any of ours in a way. So you're able to talk about it. Like I have as much right to it in a way as anybody because I'm this weird Canadian person who loves African-American music. I know I did an early form of it as a showcase at a one of these big sort of arts conference things. And I, the feedback I got through a friend who talked to a booker, he said, oh yeah, it looks interesting, looks interesting, but uh, I couldn't book it in the States. And the guy said, why? He said, well, you know, at that point I had a big band. He, he said, well, there were eight musicians on stage and none of them were black. So like, I, you know, you can't do a show in the States about the blues and have a band with no black people in it. And it was very interesting because I, I, it was an important part even in the creation of the show as much as I felt I was dealing about race and cultural issues and all this stuff in it and I had a, uh, a black co-star performer in it with me from the beginning. That's always been part of it. Um, I realized, oh yeah, wow, this is... I, in a sense, hadn't even really noticed that. Hmm. And that made me think, hmm, okay. So, so that's one issue about the States and, and I think also, um, you know... Uh, I kind of feel like in the in the U.S. there's there's other people there there are blues artists in the U.S. who should be telling their own stories, and um, I'd like to I like playing blues in the U.S. But in terms of the con- the the play as a concept, I, I I've wrestled with it because I, I I just think in America they have a it's a bit of a different conversation. I wonder if it would play better in Europe. Possibly, yeah. But I found in Europe too, there's also a bit of an appetite for like. Uh, I mean, look how many Canadians have been successful, really right. successful blues artists in, in in Europe. They've got their own people who aren't Americans, and the advantage Canadians have is that we can sing better than most of the Europeans because we don't have an accent. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you know, if you look at the level of musicianship and feel among some of the European blues bands, like man, some of those bands are as good as anybody here. Uh, particularly the instrumentalists and for the feel, I think and. And uh, I, I really love some of those Scandinavian blues bands right now, like for the kind of stuff I like. Oh my God, some of those bands are so good because they also come a bit from a jazz background. So mm-hmm. they, they're able to swing and do all that stuff. So we'll see. I'm definitely keeping the door open to that. Uh, and we'll see. Uh, it's, a, it's a show though that's quite topical. So uh, like every time I, I do it, I have to rewrite it because it's sort of about conversations also around race and the cultural appropriation and stuff like that. So even in the course of the show opening to our last performance two years later, you know, the whole Black Lives Matter conversation came right to the forefront. So like the play had to be rewritten to incorporate that. And I think in a uh, Mm post-Trump era um, and Charlottesville, I think the conversation would have to change inside it again. It's just that kind of piece, you know, it doesn't, it, it has to change with the times. Do you enjoy the writing? Yeah, I love writing. And in fact, the, the thing I've been really focused on is I've written a TV series about um, an immigrant family that has a failing diner that they decide to turn into a nightclub that ends up kind of featuring black music in it. Uh, and that's set on Young Street in 1959. Hmm. And I wrote that with a friend of mine, Semi Chalice, who's an Emmy Award winner who worked on Mad Men. And that's been driving me nuts because that's a show that I think would do so well. And um, 
you know, it's sort of like in the, <laughs> in the Drake era of Toronto, you know, it's like a show that, that is, I think, really interesting because it's looking at how city like ours and cities like ours, uh, that period in the late, late 50s, early 60s is just really when the, the transformation of them becoming multicultural uh, uh, with visible minorities mm-hmm. um, and also just how that late 50s, early 60s period uh, American culture started to have this global imprint right. and footprint. So there's things about the show that I think are just really interesting. And then also it kind of touches on, you know, what was actually sort of the Young Street scene in the late 50s and early 60s. Um, but that's proven to be very hard to get any Canadian broadcaster to get behind because despite uh, being a show that's diverse and has music in it, uh, you know, there's still a great appetite for uh, cop shows and doctor shows and lawyer shows that happen in an unnamed, unrecognizable North American city right. that can be exported around the world. And something this specifically Canadian kind of even gives the Canadians the willies. How long have you been working on Like from the moment we thought, <clears throat> this is a neat idea? To Well, I finished the pilot script over a year and a half ago, and I've been pushing it like as best I can for the last year and a half. But the challenge in Canada is uh, you have three or four people you can go to and once they've said no, right. uh, you know, you're done. So, Although if you wait long enough, they'll be gone, right? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so we'll see. I, I've still, uh, I'm trying to work on an angle now sort of more almost through the U.S. to see if I can get U.S. interest in it and see if that would kind of embolden some broadcasters here to get on board. But uh but yeah, that's the next thing I would really love to do creatively is to try to get into a room with some writers and you know try to write a whole season of that and see if we could go into production. But there's a lot of people trying to do that, and that's a lot more of a lottery to win than putting on your own play. It's right. a big deal it is to put on your own play. Like trying to get your own TV series off the ground is a whole other. But ballgame. even that, I mean, I know what you're saying because it is difficult, and <clears throat> and it usually takes a long time to get anything off the ground. Yeah. But like a play. I guess what blew me away was when I, I, I did a project about a play and, and just the amount of money that goes into putting on a play. It's not a cheap thing. It's quite no, expensive. It's hundreds of thousands of dollars ultimately. Yeah. And once you take something on the road, you know, you're bringing five people on the road per diems hotels. So yeah, it's like taking a band on the road for three weeks and right. all that. So uh, yeah, no. And again, that can only really exist in a culture where, you know, we have arts council support uh, and... Uh, um, taxpayer-funded arts councils. That's really the only way it can happen. Uh, but that's what most of the regional theaters are across Canada that people see. They're funded by the by the three levels of government. So, yeah, no, it was a great... I, I mean, I've, I've basically always been a producer, really. I produced all my own records. No one would ever put out any of my records. I uh, produced my first big show that I did was Hamlet Solo, which is this one-man Hamlet I toured for about 10 years on and off, right. which is another example of calling your own shots, you know. And once again, that still has a life, right? Yeah, yeah. I haven't done it in a couple of years now, but I'm, I'm hoping to revive it. And that's a show I'm trying to bring to the States more because it's a more, uh, um, you know, Hamlet's a familiar mm-hmm. title. And also, um, I did have the opportunity a few years ago to perform it for the student actors at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. And uh, it, I've done it for student actors. It's an amazing show for student actors to see because they see like one guy walk out on stage and do all of Hamlet. 
with just them in the room, no sets, no costumes, no props. It's just like, uh, it's like, uh, MTV unplugged. It's like Shakespeare unplugged. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, when young actors see that often, they, they're, you know, they go, Oh wow. Yeah. Like what we need is the, the audience, uh, the words, uh, and the performer. And in a way that kind of distillation that I did in Hamlet solo, I'm sure was inspired by, you know, in a way seeing like John Hammond Jr., with a guitar right, right. and a song and an audience, no other band, no lights going up and down. You know, the the intensity that the solo performer can bring, I've seen in the blues, and I think uh, that, that probably, yeah, I haven't really seen a more intense solo performer than John Hammond Jr., so oh, that's I, th- for sure. I think uh, he, he's probably, a, yeah, unknowingly an inspiration to a solo Hamlet, but that's art for you, I guess. <laughs> Are there many other things you're working on? Like I just I don't know how you schedule your time because you you're obviously working on developing new projects. You're doing auditions. You're doing film work. You're doing theater and your music. Like how does that? How does the week begin for you every week? Uh, well, I'm in a mode right now where I'm, as I say, I'm really trying to get back into television. So I'm in this terrible space. I hate being in where I'm waiting for the phone to ring, checking my email. Do I have an audition today? Do I have an audition tomorrow? Uh, uh, musically, um, it's fun. For the first time in 20 years, I'm trying an entirely new project, uh, which debuts day out, like the end of this week. Oh. Um, I'm doing a, sh- a new project called Blue Standard, which is uh, myself and Jesse Whiteley, son of uh, Chris. Quite a talent. A very uh, talented uh, musician. We're doing, it's basically jazz standards meets blues man. So I'm doing, I'm, I play harmonica like two out of 20 songs. I'm just singing like songs that I love that I've heard by Nat King Cole, um, Ray Charles, uh, Joe Williams, who I really love. Joe Williams is one of my favorite jazz singers. And Chet Baker. And so um, as it's the 20th anniversary of Raul in the Big Time, I thought it would be fun to um, mix it up, and while I'm celebrating the 20th anniversary or something, of trying to debut this totally brand new, like two sets of solo duo of duo material. So, um, and how's it been feeling to do oh, this? Oh, it feels just like when I the first gig for Raul in the Big Time, where I was like terrified, was kind of bad, didn't really know what I was going to do. I, I, I don't feel, I feel t- completely underprepared for a show I got to do in three days, like totally <laughs> underprepared. And of course, you still have to hustle and get everybody to come out, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, yeah. like book your reservations now. Uh, I'm going to leave the number with you before I leave. Um, so, Unfortunately, this is going to go on the week after. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, don't, then don't miss Raul in the Big Times, uh, May 11th, uh, 20th anniversary show at the Rex Hotel. Um, but yeah, no, I... Um, I uh, I'd like to be challenged, mm-hmm. and uh, some call it audacious, some call it foolhardy, some just call it plain stupid. You can imagine when I told people I was going to do all of Hamlet on my own, the looks I got from some people were just like, "What? You just you don't got enough to worry about?" And <laughs> then you're going to have all the Toronto critics come and say, "Who do you, who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? Why would you do it this way?" And and I, I think I must get it from my dad. My dad's a, a, a quiet, but I think very um, determined and kind of fearless immigrant man. So I feel like uh, uh, he's 
quietly undaunted by so many things. I must get it from him because uh, um, I, I know it won't be perfect. I know it won't be what I want it to be. But I've also learned in all these years that if you don't, if you don't try, mm-hmm. if you don't leap, it's never going to happen. And, and uh, you know, Raul in the big time as an act and myself as a musician are much better than they were 20 years ago. But the only way it's better than it was 20 years ago is because I actually did that first gig. Right. And, and as easy as it seems to me to be able to do it, I think that's what stops most people from becoming artists and performers is that they don't actually do that first show. For sure. You know? just doing it. And they is, don't keep yeah. going and go, oh yeah, it sucks. I mean, as a theater artist, you're really used to it because the theater artist process is the first day of rehearsal, you sitting at a table reading it and three to six weeks later, you're in front of an audience doing it and it's supposed to look like it's your life. You know, no one can... Effortless. So... Um, have you ever had like I mean obviously Hamlet was a big risk mm-hmm. have you ever taken a risk and it didn't work out very well all the time and when that happens how do you react to it you just say well at least I did it move on I don't think it, you can really fail in an investment in yourself so one reason Raul in the big time is called Raul in the big time is because it's got my name in it it's got my name on it. Mm-hmm. So I've cared a lot about it because it has my name on it. It's not called Pile Driver or right. Maroon 7. It's my name on it. Uh, and I've always looked at what's it going to hurt if more people know who you are and what you do? How's it going to hurt if more people come see you, try to excel in the thing that you're trying to excel in? And most of the time, like... It's been very rare that there's been a critic who's been tougher on me than me. Right. So I don't really, there's not much that anyone can say that I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. Right. Sometimes I think it's wrong, but you know, most of those negative thoughts have crossed my mind. So I don't look at it too much as failure. It's, it's almost always just like a little step in the road, you know, because, you know, we got hammered by many critics when Hamlet Solo opened. And a lot of people would have um, said, oh, we didn't really make it in Toronto. Like, oh, yeah, nice experiment. Good good try. But I think the best thing we did is we didn't give up. Instead, we kept working on it, and then it turned into this big success and went all over the place. And I felt like that, yeah, if I'd listened to the, you know, if, if I'd listened to the earliest critics of Raul in the big time, or I had just sort of heard myself and said, oh, God, what are you doing? Um, and quit. You know, I, I know I wouldn't be happy. How do, you, how do you have that drive to continue, knowing that, okay, right now it might not be the best, but I see the potential? Is that basically the way you look at it? Yeah, it's, like, it's probably a, a ridiculously um, uh, unfounded and uh, ill-minded faith in oneself. But you have to have that. <laughs> Right? If he didn't have that, why yeah, would you do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, you know, performers have to, uh, you have to have that as a performer. You have to believe at the same time you're the best and you're useless. Like somehow there has to be this combination. Because <laughs> if you think you're the best and you don't believe you can improve, then you're never going to get any better. Did you ever think about quitting? 
either thing, music or acting? Uh, not really creatively. I've because um, I'm very fortunate to have such variety. Mm-hmm. And I think like this idea of blue standard probably is a reaction to 20 years of playing with the same people in the same band. And, right. you know, part of it was this thing of like, okay, how can I shock myself into getting better and changing what I can do and improving my skills? And so I, I seem to be someone who's always got, you know, like I'd never written a TV pilot before. So then I spent a year writing a TV pilot with someone who was really good who could show me. Right. I've always relied a lot on mentorship. Uh, I've always relied on watching people I admire in front of me who I want to be like or steal stuff from or watch, you know, like I've never had, uh, I've totally relied on people I feel above me to follow up always. Mm. And, and so if you don't often feel like you're the person who knows everything, it helps because Mm you're always looking to someone else to show you the way uh, or to help. You know, I, I'm not so blind that I need someone to pep talk me before I go play a show at the Rex. I'm cool. Right. I can do that. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like um, as a singer, you know, getting to talk how to sing with Curtis Salgado for these years now has been like amazing because, you know, that's a guy who spent his whole life in, a, in micro segments thinking about song, melody, mm-hmm. tone, feel. And so to be able to be friends with a guy like that and pick their brain about this song they sung or this song I'm doing, how can I make that better? And he can also sing too. Yes. <laughs> so so I, I, I really, uh, you know, I, a lot of mentors I've had over the years have really, you know, yeah, right back to the ones I was telling you. Whether it was the guy who gave me the harmonica lived across the street from me mm-hmm. or Johnny Sansone or Mark Hummel or in the theater, you know, these incredible actors and in movies even, you know, some great actors who've taken the time to, I did a movie with Michael Douglas. I cornered him a couple times when we were working on that movie. Hey, what about this? And what about that? And, and uh, do you find most people willing to share that? Yeah. If you catch them at the right time and, and they trust that you're doing it for the right reasons and you're not trying to like, you know, get their agent or, right you know, on. if if it's, if it's genuine enough and I have to check myself because some, you know, I, 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 I have to know when I'm schmoozing and when I'm doing it for real. And, and as, as I've gotten older, it's got much re- easier just to not you know, just only do it for real. <laughs> well, you've done it for so long. Yeah. yeah. And, and obviously, you've also established a name in, in both fields. Yeah. But I've always, I've always, always felt you should surround yourself with people who are better than you. Mm-hmm. Never surround yourself with people who aren't as good as you. Try to be around people who are... Whatever it is the thing you're trying to do, try to be like the person who's trying to catch up, not the person who's, you know, running around telling everybody what to do. If you're, if you're in a position where you have to be telling everybody what to do, you better be getting paid for it, you know? But if you're the one who's like <laughs> having to pay everybody or you're the one who's having to scramble to try to make a living doing it, you better be learning while you're doing it and getting better. But but no, but to be honest, like it's it's you know the the greatest challenge right now is is a financial one, and I haven't found that as much of a challenge before. But I'm I'm finding that the greatest challenge right now as as the music industry is down to pennies per song, pennies Mm -hmm. per 
streams and, uh, streams yeah. and and like I said in TV there's some some version of that is occurring right now too it's being very disrupted I mean my whole argument philosophically is reach into your pocket right now take out your smartphone look at your smartphone and imagine going to the offices and to the CEO of that company and saying to them this device should be free mm -hmm. and after they called security or if they even decided to humor you and and they would say well think about all the research and development that went into the creation of this piece of technology and then i would answer well what about the content that is on these that are seemingly free what about your search engines that are these you know big uh, copyright infringement machines like all that stuff and I say to them, well, what about, you know, Blues has a tradition of over 100 years. So what about the research and development that went into 100 years of making Blues as a genre? Where's the compensation for that? Where's the 4,000-year investment R&D compensation for the art of theater and acting? And I think we're just, I think the pendulum will shift. And I, I feel like it's just starting to shift back where people are starting to go, oh, yeah, wait a second, like... There is a value in labor. There is a value in the person actually making the thing, not just watching whatever is there. Um, but I, I feel like it's in a tricky time where uh, the hardware is, is considered so valued and the content on it is, is almost an afterthought. And also because almost anyone can make content now. Right. And, and, and we're doing it right now. Here mm -hmm. we are. We're making our own content, which is an amazing thing and democratizing and creates a ability for a niche audience to really engage. I mean, the poor person listening to this is obviously some incredible blues fan <laughs> who's really interested in these things. And there's something for them, which right, is amazing, right. as opposed to waiting for, like, when is NBC going to do, like, a 30-second story on B.B. King once every five years? Like, this in so many ways is better, but it's very disruptive in terms of the compensation. Right. So, so that's, that's all. That's the, the only thing I'm worried about quitting is that it's going to quit me. I'm not going to quit it. Well, you know, that's obvious because you're obviously very passionate about what you do and you've been right. doing it for so long. So in the immediate future, you're waiting for auditions for television shows. You're yep. doing this thing with Jesse. And yep. so tell me a little more about that. Yeah. So um, I've known Jesse for quite a few years. Um, you know, he's from such an incredible family of Toronto musicians. And, uh, you know, he's got his master's degree in composition from U of T. So I figured of, of my piano playing friends, he's a guy who I could say, uh, <laughs> because I'm not musically literate enough, I could say, uh, here's these 25 songs I want to do. Uh, here's the recordings of them. Can you play them? <laughs> and uh, like a good soldier, he has been. And also, he's from the generation of guy who's used to doing work like, I can't pay him to make 40 charts right mm -hmm. now. But he knows that we're going to try to do this act together. It's very different from Raul in the big time. It's a, it's a different, uh, it's for different venues and different opportunities. And this is just the two of you? Just the two of us, yeah. Um, Can you see it growing into a... Almost not. I, okay. I almost feel it's, it's uh, 
I, I'm quite consciously trying to keep it quite separate from Raul in the big time and, and not get into like a jazz combo kind of thing. Right. I, don't, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe upright bass would be cool because it would just give it a little more of that that trio jazz yeah. feel. And some of that music, you know, upright bass is really a nice piece of it. But but no, I, I, I don't know what it'll turn into because frankly, it's just the, the beginning of it. But uh, I, I thought as a singer too, I, I really... I, I, my mind's been blown a couple times in the last few years by uh, Gregory Porter, mm-hmm. jazz singer from uh, Oakland originally. Um, I saw him, our good friend Brian Blaine, who works at the Toronto Blues Society and also at the Toronto Jazz Festival. Uh, he got me down to see uh, Gregory Porter in the tent uh, at um, Nathan Phillips Square a couple years ago, and all the singers were there. I was like... Shakura was there and Mika Barnes was there. Like all the Toronto good jazz and blues singers were were at this thing. And I was like, okay, this is, I'm in the right spot. And I became a big fan of Gregory Porter, his original music and his, uh, you know, he's just taken jet, classic jazz and, and kind of putting his own spin on it. But in an interview, I heard him talk about how Nat King Cole and Joe Williams were big influences on him. And I had almost not heard a jazz singer utter that out loud. And I hadn't really heard an African-American jazz singer utter it out loud mm-hmm. of my generation, a guy who's like my age. Almost every white male jazz singer is influenced by Frank Sinatra, first and foremost. Yeah. And from Harry Connick Jr. on, it's basically been that over and over and over again. Okay, maybe a tiny bit of Bobby Darin, a tiny bit of Tony Bennett, a tiny bit of Mel Torme. But basically, drop a Paul Anka, but basically it's been... Frank. And then here I saw this guy who was like saying, yeah, Nat King Cole was amazing, wasn't he? Incredible singer. And Joe Williams, who's, I've always loved Joe Williams with the Count Basie band, who was basically a jazz singer who just straddled blues and gospel all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, so that got me, li- so that, he really did inspire me. I mean, he, I, you know, I've met him once or whatever, met him twice at the jazz festival circuit, just like, hello, how you doing? Cool. But you know, not a mentor by any means at all, but he inspired me to try this because from my early, early days of the big time, when I first started working with my other huge mentor, Terry Wilkins, who before he joined Raul in the big time on bass was our co-producer, co-songwriter, d- done 99% of all our horn arrangements. You know, Terry had always talked about, you know, singing the jazz standard as being a great way to um, improve your singing because it requires the discipline of really singing the melody. And then after you've sung the melody the first time through, you have the opportunity to kind of expand with your own ideas and all that. Um, So all that's been in my head for years and years and years. And then this just all started to come together um, with... with, um, with Jesse and he was game and ready to put in the time. It's quite a lot of time I'm sure. to get it up to speed and it'll take a lot more gigs. Uh, and we have some more on the horizon after this one on Friday, but, uh, Where are you playing Friday? we're playing at, um, diner One Twenty on One Twenty church street. It's okay. a pretty new place. That's been specializing more in cabaret and jazz. Uh, I wanted to sort of kick it off at a new spot and, um, Mandy Goodhandy and Ori Dagan, a jazz singer from Toronto, Ori Dagan. He's been involved a lot in the booking. So he and I were in a funny CBC radio competition for Canada's number one crooner about six or seven years ago. It was me, him, and Shannon Butcher, 
a great jazz singer from Toronto. And we he had to pick a contemporary song and a classic jazz song and sing it on the radio. So I had picked uh, London Calling by uh, The Clash. And yeah. we made this pretty cool kind of version, a jazzy version of London Calling. And, uh, and then I had done All to Myself Alone, which is a song that's on You, My People, which was an early Ray Charles ballad, mm-hmm. which I will be performing at this uh, thing. And so Ori, and Ori won that night because he had done, I can't remember his jazz song, but his, his song was, he did Madonna's Like a Virgin. And the guy's got a super bass voice, so it's like, like a virgin. He's an incredible guy. And he's just done a tribute to Nat King Cole too, which has been well received. So, uh, so yeah, I just, I just sort of reached out to him and, and this was this different kind of venue that a lot of my friends who in the musical theater have been using it as a place where they're doing like, you know, my Gershwin night or whatever. <laughs> and so, uh, so that's where we're going to kick it off. And, um, are you doing any Louis Armstrong? I am doing a duet with Louis Armstrong on my own. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah I've, uh, at the last minute, I kind of added a Louis Armstrong song that I love. And, uh, I was working on it with Jesse and I said, yeah, you know, I used to do this as Louis Armstrong and I just started messing around to do it. And he was laughing his head off and he said, Oh, that's cool. So now I figured it out where I basically just talk a little bit about that being the first time I ever sang in front of people. And now I do his song, when you smiling, I do that as a, as a duet with Louis, me and Louis. Wow. What a great song too. <laughs> yeah. One of the, so it all comes and, around. Well, and I wanted, you know, the other thing too is like, I wanted to sing songs. Maybe it's the political climate we're in or just where the world's at, or it's where I'm at too. Like, I also wanted to sing love songs and I wanted to sing songs that weren't, um, even though I firmly believe blues is an uplifting music mm-hmm. and it's about, you know, kind of going through the pain to release and feeling good. Right. I also wanted to sing songs that I thought like my kids could listen to and that like, uh, you know, my mom always loved jazz and was always singing around the house. So like, you know, a lot of these songs are stuff that my mom would have sung and, 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 you know, she saw Nat King Cole as a young woman in Dublin and, you know, she, Ray Brown tried to ask her out and all this. So my mom, you know, my mom's been a big jazz fan and, and loved Ella and all that. So, so for me, I just wanted to, I wanted to, as, as much as those songs have been done a million times by a million people, and I don't know if my versions will be special in any way, but well, I'm I, sure they will. I wanted to. I wanted to have, kind of. Uh, I wanted to sing about things like that too, because in blues, uh, at least the material I've done, I, I don't have much of that. You know, a lot of the material I try to write, I try to have a bit of that in it, because you know, it, it's not all about cheating and lying for me either. Mm-hmm. Um, so. But it's still, I think you, in this song selection, it's still pretty blue. Like, it's a lot of the jazz stuff that's, like, pretty sad. <laughs> but uh, but that's why I think it's, you know, hopefully it'll be a good fit. But, yeah, it's weird to be singing, like, love, you know, Nat King Cole. L is for the way you look at me. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I, in a way, I can't believe I'm even doing it. But I was like, no, these are the songs I love, and, and I want to try to do something different. And also, I think it would be interesting to, uh, uh, um, you know, strategically... The Canadian Jazz Festival circuit has been absolutely impenetrable for me, even with a seven-piece band that has like Jake Wilkinson, Allison Young, Pat Carey, Richard Underhill, Gene Hardy, like has these incredible, mm-hmm. you know, horn guys who 
those people know. There's something about our band which has been like, uh, it's been described to me as being too jazzy for a jazz festival, which hmm. makes no sense to me. But I, I've come to learn that when they book a blues act, they want it to be like super bluesy, like a trio or like a blues rock trio or whatever, hmm. because that they want it to be different from their jazz programming. And then in some ways, ours is like this sort of pseudo jazzy blues thing. And they're like, no, 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 we already got a big band or we already have, a, you know. So, so I, I also thought it would be fun to see if that's a way to maybe get access to the jazz festivals and offer both of those as a thing, you know, like Raul and the Big Time and this. Right. They get to get both, you know, in, in some kind of way. So I, I don't know if that'll work, but I'm... I'd love to play the jazz festival circuit a bit more in Canada because I think, I actually think jazz festival audiences would love it because it's just got a little more pep and edge to it, but it's totally coming from the music that I guarantee you still tons of jazz festival audience members love right. and know. 20 years from now, maybe not. Maybe those jazz, I don't know what those jazz festival audiences will be, but they may not have the same vocabulary. Mm -hmm. But I know the jazz festival audience now will listen to it and go, oh, yeah, that's different, but I, I know where that's coming from. Sometimes I play blues festivals, and I feel like the blues audience doesn't know where I'm coming from. So, you know. <laughs> well, this is exciting, and a brand new chapter in your life. Yeah, yeah, and just, you know, like I said, it's just a, a project, and, a, and, and also, you know, I, my friend in California, Fred Kaplan, who's been a piano player for years and played with the Hollywood Fats Band and with my other friend junior watson for so many years you know uh he's also we've also been talking about trying to have you know this kind of idea of like a duo where we could play different kinds of rooms in los angeles because i'm in california a lot and i'm trying to be in the states more and more now so it's also good for me to have um just practically different shapes and sizes of act i mm -hmm. can bring because i can't i don't i can't really do the big time without the big time mm -hmm. so um you know uh it's good to but I can still play great blues with the musicians down there. It's just a different kind of thing. So, so to have this as another option is, is uh, you know, diversifying, trying to find other ways to make, sense. make a living doing it. Yeah. And, and I, I have really been doing, I mean, some of the songs we'll be doing at the Rex, not many, but a few of those songs we've been doing at the Rex, we, we have done since day one. So, uh, you know, it's, it's good to mix it up. But another challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for doing this. Sure. Thanks it's for having me. We've been trying to do this for many months. And yeah. Well, I would say it's all, if I go back to your early, early talking blues episodes, I'm like, I think this interview has actually been 20 years in the making now that I think about it. <laughs> Didn't you start around 98? Yeah, something. 2000, I, I think. 2000. Because yeah. I remember once when we were playing with Big Dave McLean, you came to interview one of your yeah, early yeah, yeah. interviews. Uh, at the Silver Dollar, yeah. it was uh, when when we were backing up Big Dave. One of the times he came through town. Yeah. So that's when I started remembering you doing it. So no, it's great, and I'm I'm thrilled you're you're carrying on. Well, thanks for doing this. My and, pleasure. Uh, good luck with the new project. Great. Thank you.